0: Are we ready to make a start? Okay. Lovely to see you tonight. I mean, it's a cold day. And uh, you've done really well by coming out tonight. Appreciate that. Now, at great cost... Pause. I've got you these. Okay. All it is... <laughs> no, they're no, not that good. Uh, all it is, it's the first two lessons, which was... The last time, a couple of weeks ago, and tonight. And then, God willing, in a couple of weeks' time, I'll give you the next two. Uh, We're trying to do the whole thing in six lessons, like I think I said to you. So the last one would be on December the 6th. Can you hear me okay at the back? You okay? All right, lovely. Um, I'll pass these out now, so on if you can do them from the back. Thank you, Al. Oh wait a minute! hi up. Mines on the other thing. hi up, hi up. Oh, that's the the master copper. You got it? Nearly gave away the secrets then. Uh, yeah, no, that's all right. Thank you, Alan. What I've been given out. Let me just do. Uh... <laughs> well, I don't know whether this is an apology or a resignation. I mean, this is up to you tonight. After the lesson that we did a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, you filled the labels in. You remember filling the labels in and, you know, what comes next, the events. Well, at the end of the meeting, I'm afraid to tell you, somebody came up to me and he said, Vic, you've missed out the second coming of the Lord. I mean, it's the only most important thing that I missed out on the labels. <laughs> so I thought about this today, and I thought, have you ever watched Dad's Army? Yeah. Yeah, we all, all watch Dad's Army. Well, you know, like you got the buffoon uh, Captain Mannering, you know, pompous little man, and he leads his platoon, and they 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 inevitably get into trouble, and they. they've got a problem which they don't know how to solve. And so they're standing round there, the platoon, uh, and Captain Mannering, And Sergeant Wilson, you know, John LeMessurier by the side of him, he says to him, well, why don't we do and then something? And then Captain Mannering goes, ah, yes, I wondered who was going to point that out. Well, I wondered whether I could have done that tonight and fooled you. But you're too clever for that. So I've uh, I've written a letter of resignation and I'm appointing Paul as my successor. He's the guilty one, Paul. He's better looking than me and he's taller, so we might be better at doing this. But for tonight, see how we go. OK. If you're looking in in your notes there, I was going to get a glass of water... If there's one going. Oh, thank you. If you look in your notes, from pages one to four, uh, one to three, you'll find that that's the, uh, the lesson that we did. Now, picking up tonight, I've got a link in at the part that we did in chapter one, just to refresh the memories. With your Bibles, if you look. Revelation chapter 1. Right. Now, there is a key to understanding revelation. And what I said to you, uh, just reminding you in that first lesson is that what John was told by Jesus when he revealed himself in chapter 1 to John, he said, write down the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things that is going to come. And that's the key which will unlock Revelation for you, the book of Revelation. And as we go into the study, you'll see what I mean. I'll explain it more fully as we go into that. But you think of chapter one tonight as the things that John saw. Write down the things that you have seen. So you're thinking about It was, it is, and it is to come. That's like, you know, the three sort of basic elements of, of revelation. And chapter one is the things that you've seen. John, he was a very old man when he was on the Isle of Patmos. And it would be about the year 1896. And all of the Middle East was in turmoil for the Christian church. It had grown rapidly, like Simon said, on Sunday morning. Incidentally, I've missed it out again. Let's just have a quick word of prayer about that while we think on these things. Father, we pray that you'll open our hearts, our minds, Lord, our understanding, to be able to take something from tonight which will, just again, Lord, make a firmer foundation in our lives. We love your word, Lord, and we love you. To know you, Lord, we'd have to know the word and understand it. And we pray tonight, in a measure that we may be able to just take the word and let it be as the seed sown upon good ground, take root, bring forth fruit. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, let's carry on. So, John, there was an old man, years about 1896, and uh, Nero had been on, the fro- uh, on his throne, you know, about AD 64, Nero came on. And they looked upon Christians as like usurpers. Um, every other religion, they didn't mind Rome, you know, oh yes, yeah, Caesar is our God, you know, along with all the other gods. So they got all the gods on the shelf and they put Nero on there as another god along with the other ones. But Christians wouldn't do that because, of course, the teaching. You know, that we have one God and he alone is the one who served. Well, that to the Romans, you see, could have brought civil unrest and revolt in the, uh, uh, throughout the whole of the Roman Empire. And Nero in particular, he was a madman. You know, when I say that he fiddled while Rome burned, well, that's not quite true, but he was a very wicked, wicked man. He uh, gave a, a garden party. And um, he delighted in getting Christians and tying them to stakes, long stakes, painting them with tar and setting them alight and they were garden lights for his garden party. I mean, how crazy is that? You know, but that is only some of the things which the Christians had to endure. You know, of course, about Uh, being thrown to the lions and things like that. that, That's not exaggeration, that really happened. And if any of you have ever been to Rome, anybody been to Rome here? Yeah, well, if you've been down into the catacombs in Rome, you know, that's where the church, the, the church became an underground church in Rome because of how wicked, and the things that were happening, you know, to them as a church at that time was, well, John lived at that time. <coughs> he'd been banished, banished to Patmos and he'd had this revelation. Now he was the last of all of the apostles and disciples and probably the generation that saw Jesus. Not only, you know, um, the apostles who walked with Jesus, but people who were alive at the time who had seen Jesus, heard him, whole group of people saw Lazarus come out of the tomb and the widow of Nain, you know, her son brought back to life. And the news of Jesus spread all over. But that generation who had seen those things, well, they died. But John, now, is a very old man. told you about it. He was established in Ephesus. He was the bishop there. And at this time now, while he was banished on the Isle of Patmos, when Jesus said to him, write down the things that you've seen. Well, of course, you know, it's seen and been with Jesus. That's probably the last of a few. And so the idea was that at the end of that first century, the church was in a dire state. The devil had attacked the church and tried to persecute the church. And it was like getting fire in a brazier, you know, and, and, and kicking the brazier over. And the devil kicked the brazier over, but the fire spread, and it set a light all over. It could, the fire got bigger. And the devil was no fool, and he saw this. So persecution wasn't really the way to quell this Christianity. But what he did find really effective, was to get clever people to come in and disrupt the theology or the ideology of what the Christians believed. And John was living in a time where you've got to remember this now, there's no Bible. The Bible we've got, there's no New Testament. They were writing the New Testament at this time. All they had was the Jewish writings, the Law and the Prophets. And what the Christians did when they met they looked at the Prophets and they, and they looked at the letters which Paul had written, Peter and James, and then a lot more people started to write letters as well. And so by the end of that uh, first century, John knew that there were spurious writings going out and about. In the Roman Catholic Bible, called the Douai Version, um It's an extremely good version, uh, originally written in Latin by Jerome, back in the 4th century. But in that Bible, they've got a section called the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha are 14 books, some say 15, some say 13. But it's just the way they divide the books up. But there's about 14 books in the Apocrypha which are writings from about the, a little before Jesus, and certainly a great lot after Jesus. then they've got writings there, talking about Jesus as a boy, and he made clay pigeons, and he touched them and they claimed to life and flew off. Well, you know, people literally believe this. So, in amongst all of the sacred writings, you know, those which were genuine, there were, there were these, which were the Apocrypha, meaning the hidden, or really that which is onto the side, the Apocrypha. Now, Jerome, with his Bible, he was not to know, you know, that when he translated from the Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek into the Latin tongue in the 4th century, there still had been no Bible put together by the 4th century, and Jerome was the first one to do that, and he did a good version. He was ignorant of the facts about the Apocrypha. But the Catholic Bible has continued to keep those 14 spurious books in their Bible, even to today, like I say, called the Douay version. And that's why they can practice or teach about places which We don't find in the Bible purgatory, limbo, you know, uh, praying to the saints and all of this is taken from writings, really, which are not sacred. So when John saw what was happening, all this sort of spurious work coming in, of course the back of it all was the devil, and he was doing a good work. They couldn't attack it from the outside, so they attacked it from the inside, and he did a really good work. So, by the time that the first century was over, there were movements of heresies, Gnosticism. spoke with the G G N. Gnosticism <clears throat> it was very prevalent at the end of the first century. People who believed that God could not have walked on the earth because the earth is so corrupt. And they couldn't believe that God would have lived amongst corrupt people. So they started a movement up which said that Jesus had got two bodies. And the one body lived on earth, but the spiritual body, that was the holy body, you know, that had never come to earth at all. Uh, and people were believing this, and it was a movement that was growing. Imagine if you were John at the end of that first century. You'd been and talked with Jesus, and you'd seen him. You knew without a doubt you'd really been with God when you were with Jesus. You know? And then he was listening to all this that was going on. When they met together, and they were talking about these heresies, so that's why the Gospel of John is always, always heavily influenced by the fact that he's saying that this man, Jesus, is God. You know, the Gospel of John is called the eagle. The eagle of the Gospels. The eagle goes from the heavens, you know, roams the heavens, the eagle does. And that's what John's Gospel is. You know, And it was written for that purpose, to back up against the heresies which were prevalent at the end of that 1st century. So when Jesus said to him, write down the things that you are seeing now, Jesus was stepping in and the foundation had to be laid, a proper foundation. I mean the original concept was that Jesus would train the twelve and the twelve would be the ones who would take the gospel into the world. Now go into all the world and preach the gospel, Matthew chapter 28. That was the original intention, never happened. So now it seems as if this last book in the Bible had got to be written because people were so confused about everything. So not only in his gospel, in his epistles as well. He tells you that the spirit of Antichrist is in the world and it was in his day. So chapter 1, that's the things that are seen, that's the was. Now we're going to look at chapters 2 and 3 tonight, and this is the things that are. And I just want to show you to look to two or three verses in that first chapter, you know, which lies heavily on what Jesus says. (coughs) Look at chapter 1, verse 1. says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly. Now, you've got to remember that word. These things must shortly take place. And he said, he sent and signified it. In other words, he was going to tell John in signs, and I told you why, you know, when we first meeting, him, why he didn't say, oh, yet you know, October the 24th, you know, 2022. Well, I'll laugh life at Riley until the day before did then put ourselves right. Well, that's human nature. So he sent and signified it by his servant John. But what I want you to look at there is that these things will shortly come to pass. Then you go to verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, the only book in the Bible which has got a promise for a blessing. And keep those things which are written in it, for the time is at hand. Okay. Then go to verse 19. And it says, Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, which are now, and the things which will take place after this. So there are your three divisions. And this is what we'll all have, will progress through the scriptures. Now, you know when Paul was alive uh, in, the, in the first century, um, he got this uh, commission to go to the Gentiles take the gospel for the Gentiles, it caused a lot of trouble in the church of Jerusalem because they really did think, the Jewish people, they thought the gospel was only for the Jews, you see, this is Jehovah, this is Judaism, as it's been now brought into their age and their time, so the Jews were the ones who were going to lead it. There's always been Gentiles, they call them proselytes, who, 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 who converted into Judaism, But the Jews really thought that the message was for them and for them only. But no, Paul, he was given the commission to go to the Gentiles. And even though he had to battle against, you know, this this dogma at Jerusalem, and a church just up the road from Jerusalem, well, not up the road, but up in Antioch, a bit more north, the church in Antioch became bigger than the church in Jerusalem, and Antioch church was fantastic. But they were, they were sort of divided between, oh, you know, we've got Gentiles, Gentiles coming to the church, and don't know whether we should have them in or not, you know, that type of thing, even in Antioch. But Paul, well, he put pay to that. When he went out, he did three missionary journeys. He went off with Barnabas. Barnabas was the fellow who really looked after Saul, he Lord, his name was Paul. Barnabas looked after Paul when Paul was an early convert. And so they went off together and did the first missionary journey. Then they went back to Jerusalem, gave the report of what had happened. Oh, you want to see the things that have been happening? You know, they'd been to modern-day Turkey down in the south and they'd crossed over to modern-day Greece and then come back into Turkey and went up north toward Dalmatia and then came back down, not only just touched the area, but the things that had happened on my first missionary journey, were incredible. And they went back to Jerusalem to give the reports. And Jerusalem, those in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, was leading the church in Jerusalem at the time, and he said to the church brethren, "If this is so, then surely the gospel." is going to the Gentiles. So then there was a sort of acceptance, you say, from after that first missionary journey. Then, after the first missionary journey, Paul got a bit sort of, well, you know, I- I'm, here, I'm here now. And I wonder what they're doing, you know, where, where we've been. They'd go to a town, and they'd sort out where the Jews were in the town and where they met, mostly down by the river. And then Paul and Barnabas would go down there and start talking to them about things which had happened in Jerusalem. A man named Jesus, who was God in the flesh. I mean, a lot of people scoffed at it, you know, but some accepted it. And those that accepted it, they became the nucleus of believers in that town. Then Paul and Barnabas moved on and did the same thing again. So when Paul and Barnabas got back to Jerusalem and saw what was going on, Paul got a bit restless, you know, thinking, I wonder what they're doing, places where we've been. And he said to Barnabas, because he think be ought to go back and have a look at them, you know, see what's going on? And Barnabas said, you yeah, know, I'm up for this. You know, well, he didn't say that, actually, you know. That's, yeah, that's what we would say, is really? He said, yeah, 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 yeah I'm up for this. And um, Barnabas had uh, uh, got a little nephew called Mark. And this Mark is very likely the one who wrote Mark's gospel. Anyway, Mark was only a young lad, and, and Barnabas said, uh, we'll take the kid along with us. No, he didn't, Well, yeah, okay. he did, but he didn't save the kid. He said to Paul, he'll be an elk, you know, he'll be okay, you know, he'll help us as we go. So Paul, you know, consented, and they went. And uh, this young dad, Mark, uh, they started off, Crossed over the sea, went to Cyprus. Going to Cyprus, miracles happening in Cyprus. And then Mark got homesick. I reckon he was crying for his mum at night, you know, like they do in homesick. I'm just going to divert a little and tell you a true story. I went in the army, and I was 17. I was a a young lad, you know, but I was really keen. And um, on the very first day in the army, you go in, you go in your barrack, you're told where to go, you know, you, you go there in your barrack room, and then all these fellas are tipping in. Uh, now these were blokes who shaved. You know, I was 17, hadn't and grown a whisker. And, and they're all coming in. Nobody knows anybody. But I've been in the army cadets before, so I've got a little bit of an anxious say. So we're went in the barrack room, and it's a long room, 12 beds up this side, 12 beds down that side, with a narrow, you know, wardrobe for each of the beds. Well, I knew the first thing you do, you don't take your bed nearest the door. So I went up to the top, and you don't take the top bed either. So I took the one below the top. So I sat on that bed and I thought, this is one for me, you know, you're sort of hidden. When the sergeant comes in, the corporal comes in in the background, the first ones they go to are the ones, you know, by the beds there, so I was all right at the top. But this fella, this chap, he came into the bed at the top and he was Scottish, McMurch, his name, <laughs> <laughs> McMurch. He was married, and I was 17, oh. and I thought, it. Oh. oh, I mean, he, he could be me dad, you know. <laughs> Do you know that night, he was crying? Look, yeah. And he only lasted about four or five days, And then he disappeared, he went home, you know. Now, Mark, homesickness is something which is awful, you know. I mean, I I had this little nipper when I first went away, and you only had it once, and then after that, you know, well, couldn't care less about Mum and Dad, you know, if you're out on an adventure, you could do it, wouldn't you? But Mark, no, he cried and he went back home. And Paul must have been exasperated. you know, but they carried on. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, and they went into what we would now call major part of Turkey. And churches were being established all in that area. And they did great work there, Thessalonica, Philippi, you know, all the way through and going back on the churches which they'd seen before. When I say church, I mean the church means people, doesn't mean a building. The church was the people, you see, so... They probably didn't have any buildings at all, but they met in open air you know, and uh, sort of in people's houses who've got big enough houses. Their houses have got great courtyards in them. You know, the posh people, like some of you. I mean, in ours, you'd only get the garden, so we wouldn't get many in like. But over there, they've got these big courtyards. So they did the second mission journey and came back. And they gave a more glowing report about what had happened. Churches were springing up all over the place. You know, believers. And then Paul again got a bit restless and he wanted to go again. And Barnabas said, yeah, okay, we'll go again. And Barnabas said, I know he he played up a bit, you know, on the the sentence. I know he played up a bit, but I'd like to take Mark with us. And Paul said, no, not on your life. Yeah, no, no, we're not taking him. He was nothing but a nuisance, crying all night for his mum. You know, that type of thing. Now, it was a bit worse than that, really, the Bible says. And you might not believe this. I do, and I thank God for it. They had, the Bible says that the dissension between them was so strong between Paul and Barnabas, so they got into a right row, and these are saints in the church, apostles, pastors, they almost came to blows, and Barnabas in the end he said, oh go off on your own, and he went one way with Mark, and Paul, he looked round there with Silas sitting there, he said, do you want to come? And Silas said, yeah, I'll go with you. So Paul had got a new bloke, now, Barnabas and Mark, they went across the Mediterranean Sea and they did a great work in Cyprus and on the Crete. You know, that, so instead of the work being sort of compromised, really what it did, it did to help. You know, sometimes in life, in church life, things happen which are difficult. And, you know, you can get upset and, and things happen and... and, and you know you, you do things and you but it's all in the plan and purpose of god in the long view you know so anyway paul and silas they went off and those are the couple that were in the jail near philippi you know that type of thing and so the work prospered now coming back to the isle of Patmos after all that and it's nearly time to go home and we haven't touched the study well now, coming back to Patmos with, with John, um, when Jesus said, Now, write the things which are surely going to come to pass. I told you when we first met that if you get four theologians in a room and get them to talk about Revelation, they'll end up with five different theories. You know, that's that's like the book of Revelation. That's That's really how it is and it's always been now if you come tonight thinking that you're going to understand the book of revelation by the end of this no i'll give you an overview of it but you'll have questions and i won't be able to answer those questions because the book of revelation is one which has got many layers of depths once you start digging into revelation you've got to go deeper 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 and no one ever really has broken the code but That doesn't mean to say that the message of Revelation can't be understood. The whole reason for the book of Revelation is to say that God is gonna culminate everything to do with time on earth. It's going to happen. And Revelation tells you about all those things which are gonna happen before the end of time. So the message is that God is still in control regardless of what, you know, is happening today. God is still in control. Now, if you have a look at your page, on on page four, this is lesson two. With that in mind, now, just bring back to mind what I told you. The church is in a mess. There's a lot of spurious writings going around. People don't know what to believe and what not to believe. So, chapter 2 and chapter 3, these are the messages that that Jesus gave to John to tell the churches. There's only seven churches mentioned, but there were loads of churches. So, why just these seven churches? They were all tightly knit in one small area in what we have now, western Turkey. There's a city there called Izmir. Izmir is the Smyrna of these, these churches. So the first message is to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And all those seven churches are in this tight, compact area. Why did Jesus pick those churches? And that's what we're going to look at tonight. And I can start by telling you that they'd got problems in all of the seven churches. There were problems there. And what Jesus said to John, I want you to write a message to these churches. In verse 20 of chapter 1, we, before we come into chapter 2, uh, Jesus just says to, uh, to John, uh, <coughs> The mystery of the seven stars. Now you remember what, what, what uh, uh, John saw. He was on Patmos and it was Sunday morning, the first day of the week. And he heard this sound behind him and the voice. And he turned round and looked and there he saw this glowing radiant figure. And he describes the figure. And standing there and round about him, seven lamp stands. And and there, there were stars in his hands, seven stars. And then in verse 20 here, you haven't got to wonder what they are. What, what's the lampstands? What's the, what's the stars? The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches okay now if you go to your notes and you look on page four down at the bottom i've got there look at the chart i think you'll find the last two pages in the folder there, you've got the chart. Don't worry about the the last one, but go to the one before. Which should be that one. All right, so you've got the figure there, Jesus, of course, in the seven lampstands, And the seven stars. Now under those stars, on the left-hand side, we've got Ephesus. And then going along the line there, the seven churches. And then, if you look in Ephesus and look below, I mean, you know, I've got, um, I did the typing as, as bold as I could. But, you know, trying to squash everything in there. If if you've got bad eyesight, I'll tell you what it says. But if you turn sideways, Ephesus, it's got backslidden church, the early centuries of persecution. Now that's the opening key to chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 1, the things which were, Now, chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are. So, is this an opening revelation which is ongoing, it's rolling on, down through the ages? Back to the chart again, where the cross is on the left-hand side, you know, the cross of Jesus and the hill. The line below the hill, as you go along there on the right, we've got 100, 200, 300, 400, all the way up to 2,000. Well, that's the years. So the first one, the 100 years, is 100 years after the death of Christ. Okay. And at the bottom, let's just see if, uh, yes, you have. At the bottom there, what I've done, I've put down notable uh, stages in history of events that have happened along the timeline. Now, this is what I believe. And... you know, it's up to you to decide whether or not you go along with this. Now, I believe this because when Jesus said to John, now these things must shortly come to pass, I don't, I don't believe that that means there's nothing to until, you know, the end of time, which is the futuristic view of the interpretation of Revelation. In other in words, otherwise, the futurists, they believe that it's all going to happen at the end. Well why did Jesus say that it would sh- shortly come to pass? It can't be, it's gotta it's gotta be shortly. And also he said the things which are. Now I reckon these seven churches have got problems in the churches, and Jesus saw those seven problems in the churches, and he gave it a code so as each of the churches represents an age through. The church age. So the church age, what we're in now, from the day of Pentecost until Jesus comes again, well, we've got seven periods. And, and what Jesus said to the churches, we can understand it now. They couldn't understand it at the beginning, you know, because, of course, history hadn't happened. But we're the generation Who might be the last generation, you know, before all these things happen. So this generation is the one who can look at the book of Revelation and begin to work out. Well, that's what it's all about. So, if we go back to our notes, and then we'll go through the seven churches, and just basically here what I've written. Now, Ephesus, it means, bottom of page four, the name means to let go, you know, to let the thing go. That's what Ephesus means. Jesus had the message to this church that he had left its first love. How easy it is to become formal in worship and service. Many Christians could identify with this criticism as the years go on, human nature begins to fall into apathy. With those very things that were, at the outset, the joy of life. It's true this is because new clothes, new car, new house, they all become just part of our lives and we look for the next, I- uh, next item to excite us. And that's true. It's true in church life. No matter how much you love the church, you'll have a season. You know, because that's human nature. Oh, I'm used to all this. I could do this with my eyes closed. Well, if you do it in church, that's okay. But, you know, no. you have to pull ourselves up from time to time and we need to reset, I think is the word they use nowadays, and understand what our lives are all about. So here we are. The devil can make gain on this weakness, the weakness of getting used to things and then becoming apathetic. When it comes to our spiritual life, John was aware of the falling away in the church at Ephesus. He was bishop here before and after his imprisonment on Patmos. There were heresies, that's what I've told you about, being preached with a message that Jesus was not really God in person. John confronts this message directly and emphasises the deity or the godliness. The deity means God. That Christ is God in his gospel and epistles. Jesus tells the church that they have tested those that said they were apostles and found them liars. This is the message in chapter 2. Then he reprimands the church for leaving his first love. Now, if you want, you can do this in your own time. But if you re- go to Acts chapter 20 and then look at verses 17, 20, uh, 20, Acts chapter 20, verses 17, 29 and 30, you'll see, you know, about what this message was. Regarding the hated deeds of the Nicolaitans, see the message of, to Pergamon. I'll tell you now, Nicolaitans. Well, it's a Greek word, Nico, meaning... To be set in a higher office, and laity mean the laity. The laity is us, the church, we who sit in the church. And Nicolaitans, they were people who'd been appointed to positions in church, and because they thought they'd got that position, they were above the church. And so rather than being a minister, which means to serve the church, well, they was the minister that the church should look to and look after and and dominate. And what I say goes. Now, Jesus said he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I I was with a house group over in Harbour. And we had a retired healing minister minister come, and, and he was in the group. It sort of, you know, sort of, didn't balance the group really because he sat there and I was thinking well you don't really belong here you know this bloke he's he's streets ahead of me you know that type of thing and he said something to me which uh, made me really think and I thought well I did believe that but I thought it was wrong he said in the group that he was questioning whether it was the right thing to ordain pastors Now, I've been ordained, Becky has, Simon has. You know, we've been ordained at the conference. You go to the front, they lay hands on you and so forth and so on. You know, and that's ordaining. But what this minister said, he said, because, he said, people put you on a pedestal and it's the wrong way around. The minister should be serving the people. And, you know, I thought about it, I thought, the more I think about it, the more right it is. I knew a chap in the Assemblies of God, and he was one of the leaders in this district, you know, over on the east side of Birmingham. And uh, his mother had got to go to hospital. Well, Sandra's sister was, was, a, was a nurse at the East Birmingham Hospital. In fact, she was a sister in the hospital. And this minister, he brought, his, he brought his mother, you see. And he thought he didn't need to stand in the queue because he got his minister's collar on, his dog collar on, you see. So he got his dog collar on. And he thought that because of who he was, he could go to the front, you see. And he was very upset. And he didn't know that my sister-in-law Pam knew him and he embarrassed himself and made him look foolish, you know. And that's where, in some cases, you can't blame the fellow because the church has put him up on the pedestal. I mean, he's a lovely fellow, a lovely fellow, but he got used to people pushing him up on a higher status. They aren't really, they aren't. We're just all amongst us, aren't we? You know, I mean, I used to do prison ministry and I've never worn a dark collar. And I went to a prison up north to see this fella and they lumped me with all of the, you know, all of the visitors. And this prison guard said to me, who you come for, mate? <laughs> I like, who you come for, mate? Oh, I've come to see Michael, you know, so, so, so. Who are you? You know, thinking I might be his brother or his whatever. I i along well, a chaplain, come. He's asked to see me. You see, you in a chaplain, You see, you have got a dog collar on. I said, no, I, I, I you know, don't wear a dog collar. He said, are you a vicar? I said, well, I'm a pastor. He said, what's a pastor? He said. I said, it's a shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> so, coming back to the Nicolaitans, you see, this is the I'm only telling you that, so as you understand, you know, fully. In the church, they'd got it all lopsided, where Jesus said to his disciples, now I'm washing your feet as an example to show you that you've got to serve the people, he said. And they'd lost that by the end of the first century. Topsy-turvy. So, in Ephesus, it's the backslidden church. That's what we can call it. And it's probably the Ephesian period. Don't take these years for rise. I've put them in because it's about that period of time. But you take it from the death of Christ, probably AD 33, to the year 170. And in the year 170, the Roman persecution still hadn't finished. In fact, it was probably getting worse. From Nero in AD 64, he went right the way through to the fall of Rome in 476. So you're looking at over 500 years, you see. And in that period, there were, well, this church period, not to 476, but in the period that we're discussing here, there were 10 Roman emperors, Caesars, and they were all evil. And they had a grudge against Christians. And the Christian church suffered horribly under the Roman's during this period of time, which is why we come to Smyrna. Now, if you're looking in your notes, Smyrna, the city is modern day Izmir in Turkey. The name means bitterness, so it suits this church because. The root meaning of uh, also, is the root meaning myrrh, which is anointment used in the preparation of a body for a funeral. Now at this time the church was going through a time of great persecution. The Roman government had already identified Christianity as a sect that was against the theory that the Roman emperor should be seen as a god, aligned with all their other deities. Nero was emperor from AD 64, and there would be continuous opposition and persecution of the church until AD 310. At this point Diocletian, Diocletian was at the year AD 310, was exceptionally cruel to the Christian faith. He ruled for 10 years, and this could possibly be the reference to the 10 days of great persecution that Jesus spoke to in chapter 2 here, that it could be the 10 days of great persecution of Rome over the period from AD 170 to 310. And I think at this stage we ought to have a look at the message to the Ephesian church and the Smyrna before we do the others. Chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church of the Ephesians writes, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those that are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, And you have persevered, and have patience, and have laboured for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. See, that's the backslidden part of the church. Remember therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from his place, unless You repent. But this you have, Jesus said. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. See, pompous pride. No, you get nowhere with God. You know, be humble. You know, and be proud you're humble. No, 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 no. No, no. Be humble. Um, not over-humble, you know, but something, I just be yourself and don't push yourself. That's arrogance. He ate, you hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he closes with, to Ephesians, this this message. Hear you as an ear. let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the uh, paradise of God. That was the message to Ephesus and when Jesus looked at that church in Ephesus you know yeah I've got that that's that that's that first period you know and Jesus said that'll be the one that I can put in tell uh, John to write about and then in 2022 in Christian Life Centre I'll get the full nickels to tell the church you know this is what's happening so the next one is the persecuted church. Now then to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. These things say the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, your tribulations, and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you have which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, again at the end of the message, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So you can see what's happening here now. The first two churches. What we'll do, we'll just scan over now the seven churches because I don't want to keep you, you know, to go all the way through everything, but we'll scan them over. Now, at the bottom, Pergamos, a very notable city now in the first century, Pergamos, the oldest city in the province and the official seat of the Roman government of that region. There was a 200-foot altar to Zeus or Zeus. Now, 200 foot. You're thinking of a block of flats, and it's between eight, well, between 10 and 12 foot for the story. You know, so you're thinking of a block of flats. Now, they've got to be, well, if it was 12 feet, and this is 200 feet, it's got to be 19 storeys high. And they built an altar as tall as that. To the god Zeus in Pergamos. And Jesus pointed this out. He said, the Greek god, who he thought was the father of the gods of the Greek pantheon and ruled over all humans, that's what they thought. This could be the reference Jesus makes to Satan's throne in Pergamos. He talks about Antipas, my favourite martyr. You know, he was a favoured martyr. Nobody knows who Antipas was. But historically, it was said the Romans took him and put him inside a ball made of brass and then put it in the fire so they roasted him to death. Honestly, you can't believe this, can you? Now that's what it was supposedly that happened to Antipas. It was thought was the first martyr in Asia. Some say it was the bishop in the church who was supposedly burned to death by being put inside a brazen bull. Jesus commends the church for holding faithful uh, through that time. The central theme of Jesus' rebuke is twofold. First, that some in the church hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Now, you read about Balaam in in the Old Testament, and uh, he was a prophet of God. But, you know, everybody disputes that he was a prophet because he did some horrible things. He was the one who was called by Balak to curse the tribes of Israel as they were moving towards the promised land. And they came on the borders of King Balak's land. And so Balak sent for Balaam to come and to curse the people. But instead of cursing them, he blessed them, Balaam, you see. But what it doesn't tell you in the Bible, but you can pick it up later, you know, he was killed because of what he did. What Balaam did, he um, he couldn't take all the treasures that was offered him, you know, to curse the people. But somehow or other, whether he did it out of spite or not, what he did, he got he got the men in the tribes of Israel to come over into Moab and and take wives of the Moabites, although they'd already got you know the Children of Israel had already got their own wives, but to come over, take wives of the Moabites and the Moabite wives started to teach them to worship Baal. So this is what Jesus was on about there. <coughs> they halted the doctrine of Baal. Well, what he's saying, in the church in Pergamos, there are those who are worshipping other than what the church is supposed to be all about. Central theme of God, and second, that some hold on doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I've told you about. It was through the false prophet Balaam that Israel was seduced into idolatry by the women of Moab when they were on the way to the Promised Land. Jesus likened the congregation at Pergamus to Israel's immorality because they compromised their faith by joining with the state and accepted many practices that were totally unchristian. This is so dangerous to the life of the church. Constantine, a Roman general that became emperor, had an experience through a vision which made him turn to Christ. What happened? Constantine, he was a general here in Britain. He was here for, only for about a year, but he was a general here. And back in Rome, Caesar had died. And Constantine was in line, you see, to be next Caesar. But... A relative of Constantine's in Rome. What he did, because Constantine was off on his holidays, you know, in in Newquay, in Cornwall, <laughs> or somewhere like that. Well, um, because of that, his brother thought, "Oh, he's, he's out the way there," you know. So, not his brother, his relative. His relative, he just stepped into the throne to Caesar. Well, of course, Constantine, he heard about it, and he started moving with some of his army out of here, Britain, across the Channel. So I had to go through France and this relative of his had heard that Constantine was on the move. And so the relative, he got a great big army together from Rome and started out to meet Constantine, see. So they get messages, messages sent between them and Constantine knew that he was coming and he knew that Constantine was coming. And the night before the battle as Constantine was moving to make camp that night, he uh, he saw, literally, you know, historically, this is supposed to be fact, he saw in the sky the sign of the cross, and he knew it was the sign of the Christian. He wasn't a Christian, but he saw the sign up there. And he took it that this God of the Christians was speaking to him. Well, you know, Constantine, he got lots of gods, you know, so oh, well, you know, that's the God of the Christian, I'll, I'll pray to that God. So he prayed to the God of the Christians that, you know, he would have the victory the following day. And he did, he had, a, he had an astounding victory, Constantine did. So straight away, you, know, well, you know, this God is the God that answers. All the others, you know, it's sort of potluck. But this one really answers. So Constantine was supposed to have become a Christian. And he went to Rome. He took it over. He hated Rome and moved out of Rome and went into what they call the Byzantine uh, uh, centre, which which was Constantinople. They named it after Constantine, but into that area, where the Byzantine area was, and he settled there. And he, 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 he was Christian, and he thought it was going to help God by making people become Christians. So what he said to all the people is, if you become a a Christian, you don't need to pay tax. (laughs) Well, everybody became a Christian, you see. (laughs) They didn't believe in God. They just thought, well, I don't want to pay any tax, but I don't mind going to church once a week. (laughs) And, um, And Constantine, whether he did it willingly or ignorantly, but what he did, he brought in the heathen and to keep them, he adopted some of the heathen practices into the church there, which is now Istanbul, you know, into Constantinople. And he brought these heathen practices in. And you know what? We still practice them today. That's right. Right. They came into the church and they stayed into the church. Some of the people that came into the church with Constantine, they worshipped the sun god. And um, so Constantine said to them, Oh, yeah, that's all right, you know, uh, well, Jesus is the sun god. And uh, what these sun god worshippers did, they worshipped the sun, but they had a great big festival on what's now uh, December the 25th three days after the equinox, the winter equinox, because that's when the sun starts to get stronger again. So they had this big festival. So what Constantine said to the church was, Well you know, that's it, Jesus was born on December the twenty fifth. He wasn't he was born more all about the April time. But this Christmas they'll be singing carols and we all do it. What I say, well every day is the day you celebrate Jesus, don't you? But in that first church they did that and lots of other practices as well you know which the roman catholic church still practice to this day the free church they've got some of the practices but not all you know lent lent isn't in the bible you know lent isn't in the bible but it is in the heathen practices the 40 days of weeping for tammuz You know, Tammuz was the son of Nimrod and his wife Semiramis, and they had a son, Tammuz, and Tammuz was killed while he was out hunting. So they deified Tammuz, this is way back in the Babylonian era, or in the Assyrian era at Nineveh, and they deified Tammuz and they kept his sign. it wasn't the letter T which they were doing for Tammuz, because of course it was in their own Sumerian language, you know. But this sign of the cross. Well, people who worshipped Tammuz, they did they did this sign for Tammuz, you say, and that was adopted into church with Constantine. Oh, that looks all right, you know. Put a bit of that in, and the forty days of Lent, you know, crying for Tammuz, yeah, okay. Uh, well, we did that for like 40 days, boarding up until uh, you know when Jesus died. So we'll bring that in as well. And you'd be amazed at the amount of the infiltration of heathenism that is in the church and the people are ignorant of it. You know, totally. Anyway, coming back to this, that's what Jesus is on about. You've joined yourself to heathenism you see and in this church here he told them pergamon no that's not right i don't like that and he told them up for it so constantine the roman general that became emperor he had this experience by a vision in his zeal to advance the church he adopted many beliefs from the heathen religions this wrought havoc to the church Inevitably, the acceptance of heathen practices led to a segregation of priests and laity. I mean, they made it absolutely obvious, you know. Uh, when the church opened on Sunday morning with Constantine being there, it could be with great pomp and glory, and they set up a throne at the front, and he'd come and sit on the throne. And then they noticed there, there was the mayor. Oh, come up here, put a chair out for the mayor, you know. And then anybody who was a dignitary, well, they had high chairs, And they set themselves above the people. So they were worse than the Ephesians, you know. And not only that, they bedecked the churches out with, with iconology, you know, paintings. And then they deified people who'd been really good, made them look like, you know, pray to these people and your prayers will go through them. And these paintings of the saints around the church all developed into what we know today, which is practised in churches, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. Anyway, let's get down this, otherwise we're not going to get home till midnight. Right, next one, Thyatira, very quickly. Now, this is called the Lax Church. Jesus rebukes the church for allowing a woman named Jezebel. Oh, wicked woman, Jezebel. Jezebel. She was a Sidonian who came down and married Ahab, king of Israel. And she was wicked. Killed people. At the drop of her hat. You know, had people killed. They had a daughter called Athaliah. And Athaliah became a queen in Israel, in Judah. And Athaliah killed all her grandchildren, all the sons. One escaped. You know, what a wicked line is Jezebel. Absolutely awful woman um, named Jezebel to teach and practice immoral acts and sacrifices to idols this is Thyatira um, so let me see if I can just shorten this down um, going down through the years this church became dominant throughout the whole of Europe kings had to obey this church They were frightened to death, kings were, of being excommunicated. If they were excommunicated, it meant they went to hell, no matter what else. This church, under the head of the church, that we know now the Pope, well, that Pope, he had massive power. He could tell kings and emperors and anybody who was anybody what they could do. And during that time, in this period, this Thyatira period, is the longest period, lasted for nearly a thousand years. years. And uh, in that time, it developed and grew. Practices which were brought in, which were absolutely. We haven't got time to go into all of that. But the church at Thyatira, they allowed this woman Jezebel, who Jesus said, Jezebel isn't the woman in the church that... Jesus used her as the example of what the organisation and concord of church, it became an organisation, and the Pope was over this organisation, ruled with a rod of iron. People were frightened to death that they might do something wrong and go to hell. If the church said, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. You know, that's, that's awful, awful. And this period, but all the way through, uh, to the time of the next period. Now, the next, oh, I'll just go in page seven. At the top of the page there, this church, Thyatira, became so bad that a man named John Wycliffe, who was uh, a student, a brilliant man, lived here in England and he knew Latin. He was training to be a priest, and he was reading Jerome's Bible. And he read there that salvation was given by God, not by the church, by God. And John McCliffe was a clever man. And he started to question all these things that were going on. And he was told to shut up and just obey. Well, you know, he was an educated man. Now, John Wycliffe, they call him the Morning Star of the Reformation. See, so he lived 1330, the year 1330, to the year 1384. And he's known as the Morning Star of the Reformation. But the man who really pushed the Reformation, and the Reformation was to break from this, from this iron grasp that this organisation organization had over all of Western Europe, the man who really... Challenged it and broke the clasp was the man Martin Luther, who was a German monk, and he knew about what John Wycliffe had tried to do. And Martin Luther wrote down his 96 theses of what was wrong with the church, and he went to the church at a place called Worms, and he nailed it to the church door for everybody to see. Well, he got thrown out of the church. Nobody didn't mind that anyway. And from that day on, there was starting to be a breakaway from this iron grip of this church, which Jesus calls, you know, the Church of Jezebel, and under the guise of the city of Thyatira. So now, this, this iron grasp is being broken, we come to the next stage in the church age, Now we're coming up more to our time of history, you know, King Henry VIII time. Sardis. Page seven. The dead church, dead. Sardis means the escaping one. Jesus tells this church in chapter three, verse one, that a dead church. It was formalistic, a form of godliness without power. There were few who held faith. Who held to faith and their names are secure in the Book of Life, so there were a few of them. The term escaping one is a perfect description of this period because people were escaping from the Roman grip, Roman Catholic Church a grip. Henry VIII, he wrote a letter to the Pope saying, God, this... Bro-. Henry VIII had married his brother's wife. His brother had died, you see, so he was the next to life, so he'd got to marry her. And so... He didn't like her, but he had to marry her. And then he wrote to the Pope, he said, I don't like her, I don't want her, so I want to divorce her. But the Catholic Church said, no, there's no divorce in the Church. So through the argument that Henry VIII had with Rome, who wouldn't give him permission, you see, what he did, Henry VIII, he said, oh, I couldn't care about you, you know, uh, that's it, cleared off, I'm up a new Church. And still to today, he took the, t- the title, the Defender of the Faith. And if you listen to King Charles, when he took the oath, the, that oath is said by every monarch since Henry VIII, the Defender of the Faith. And what it is, it's the faith of not the Catholic Church, but the faith of the Free Church, the Church that protested, or the Protestant Church. You see, so that's what it's all about. So in, in Sardis, it was a dead church because they didn't know what to do. All they'd had for a thousand years was coming to church, stand up, sit down, kneel. You know, so they did all these formalistic things. They didn't know what they got to do, it, but they were told to do it, so they did it. So when they left the Catholic church, well, they started to do the same things anyway, you see. They thought, well, that's what you do in church. Mm-hmm. So they were doing it. But it became a dead church. And I got a theory, you know, a theory. It was the squires of the land, the earls, the barons, the viscounts of the lands, who owned the country mansions and estates. You know, they were the squire. And we were digging the potatoes for them, you know, that type of thing. And their children, the squire's children, well, they were the elite. And they went to proper schools we went to schools like my school farm streets down the back streets of ockley but their children went to posh schools now some of the sons they were as thick as two short planks you know the sons of these earls and princes or whatever uh, and they despaired of them so when they finished going to university and came back home You know what could they do with them Uh, they were young kids they got to do something so they did one of two things they either put them in the army or put them in the church that's what they did because it was looked upon as a good profession and a lot of these kids these fellas in those days they ended up in the church they didn't need to believe in god they got a book there they just read the book and that was it So the church at this period developed into a dead church. Philadelphia, very quickly, bottom of page 7. We're moving all along these church periods and we're moving through time. Now Philadelphia is the favoured church. Philo is Greek for love. Not not love between a man and a woman, it's the love between... uh, a man and a brother, uh, like a woman and a sister. That love that you have, that's filial love. So Philadelphia means the love of the brethren. And the Church of Philadelphia, we're coming up to a time now, um, at Sardis, that period takes us through to about 1730. So it's you know, getting more recent for us. In 1730, what happened? What happened was, and it's happened in this country, in England, nowhere else in the world. In this country, a man named William Carey, who lived in Northampton. And Northampton was the centre of bootmaking. Well, everybody went to church on a Sunday, but William Carey went to a meeting on a Friday night. And the fellow who was speaking, he said this phrase, he said, Expect great things from God, do great things from, for God. So William Carey was in there. Now to me, you know, I think, oh yeah, okay, okay. But William Carey, it hit him like a bombshell. And he couldn't get it out of his head. And he got this longing to serve God. And so he went off to India. And William Carey, you probably don't know that, well maybe you do. I didn't know his name, Uh, I suppose most of us here wouldn't know, you wouldn't know his name because not much is said about him, but he is called the father of modern missions, a fellow from Northampton, who went to India, and then from that, seeds were sown, and in London a printing company started to print up sections of the Bible called gospel tracts, not the whole Bible but parts of the Bible. And they were called the London and Foreign Bible Tract Society. And then they started to print the, the tracts up in different languages because William Carey had set the example. Now, other people in this country were thinking, I've got that longing to go. And in this country, there were people like Stanley Livingston, you know, a brilliant man up in Edinburgh, in the, in the university there, going to be a doctor. But he got the call to go to Africa, into areas which had never seen a white man at all. Uh, on the maps of the world in in the 18th century that we're talking about here, all round the coast of Africa had been mapped, but on the maps, and still today you can see it in in the museum, in the uh, yeah in the museums in the historical section, all they've got in the middle of Africa is the dark continent. That's all because nobody had ever gone in there, he said. But Livingstone went in there and he took the gospel with him. The First white man to go in. Now this was happening and missionaries were going from our country, Hudson Taylor to China. You know, the inland China missions were started by Hudson Taylor. And what happened, not only because these missionaries went out from these shores and the gospel was taken from these shores... But whether we knew it or not, we were fulfilling a promise that God gave to Israel. If you abide by my laws and keep them, then I will bless you and your breadbaskets will be full. Now from that time, this small island of Great Britain became a world empire. And there's never been an empire as big, even to today. We're not a world empire now. But the Empire, when I was a little kid, I remember being in school in Farm Street, geography, and they got this map of the world up, you know, and it was all coloured in, and top left, Canada now, I knew it now, I didn't know then. Canada, all in pink, and then down through South America and some of the uh, southern states in pink down into South America, and then across to Africa, pink, and then up into Europe, where over and to the right, it was pink, and then to China, not pink, but little spots of pink, where the East India Company had had, had established themselves, down through to the bottom right-hand corner, Australia, New Zealand, pink. And I didn't know where all the pink was until the teacher told me, it's the British Empire. The sun never set on the British Empire. And I looked at that, and I looked at Russia, and I thought that was England. You know, go... And then when they told, when, I, when she... You know, the teacher told us that England, was this little island in the corner there, I couldn't believe it. I wanna, how, how does that have a, an empire this big? Queen Victoria had an ambassador come, and the ambassador said to Queen Victoria, what is the secret of the power of the British Empire and she said to him two words, the Bible, that's what Victoria said, the Bible. It wasn't our fighting prowess, it wasn't our armies, it wasn't, although we'd sent them out, it wasn't that they built the empire, it was God who blessed the country because they obeyed the command and the promise from God in the word, you know, that we had started to spread the word, the gospel, into the world. And God blessed the nation with the empire. It's a bit different now today. But that's how we came back. And Philadelphia was this period of time a favoured church, the church of brotherly love, that took us up to the last period. Oh, we're nearly there. Laodicea, the lukewarm church. And most of you know about Laodicea. We're told about this. And unfortunately, this is the last church and it's the day and the age that we live in, the lukewarm church. You think you're rich, really you're very poor. You know, the Church of England is probably the largest landowner in this country. The riches are amazing. Don't mean anything to God at all. I read about a man called uh, Oswald Smith, Oswald J. Smith a Canadian, Uh, he was a minister in Canada, and um, he had had an upset in the church, you know, and he thought, oh, I I can't do this, so he dropped down from being a minister, you see, Uh, but he still went to church, and um, he was was taking the collection round in the church, one Sunday morning, he was passing the plate out. And while he was passing the Plato, God said to him, What are you doing? It's clear as that. He said to Oswald J. Smith, What are you doing? And Oswald J. Smith went to prayer and said to the Lord, Well, I didn't do very good as a minister, you know, it all went cock all went wrong and this, that and the other. Um, and God said, Get up off your knees and get back to what you should be doing well there was a church which was you know nobody would take this church on it was a big church called city church in in ontario one the province of ontario and um, a big church but uh, they'd always had trouble there and it was really bankrupt they couldn't pay for a minister so as old jay smith he said well i'll take it on because he felt, you know you've got to do it And what Oswald J. Smith said to the church, he said to the people there, they said, we can't pay you much. You know, you'll have to live in the back room at the church and we can't really pay you much. And he said, no, that's okay, we'll do it. And Oswald J. J. Smith said to them, but one thing I want you to do, he said, whatever money comes into the church, no matter how meagre the amount, we must send one-tenth of it to the missions. And they said, we can't, you know, we that we hadn't got enough money to run the church, he said, well, I won't take the church on. And they said, "Okay, then we'll do it. Now, they did that, and, you know, within a short period of time, the church was absolutely bulging. And they wasn't giving 10% to missions. They were giving over 60% of the income in the church off to missions because God blessed what Oswald J. Smith did. Now, what we did in this country, not us ourselves, but what this country did, without knowing it, we spread the word out into the world and God blessed it. And it's, the principle of God is you give generously and I give to you generously. And in these days, especially when we're looking at can we pay the bills, i tell you what, a challenge. And when this happened, I thought, I've got no fear of this. You know, last book in the Old Testament, and God challenges through the prophet, Malachi, he said, prove me, prove me. He said, give to me what's mine. You've held back. Now give to me what's mine, the tithe. God don't need it. But he wants to see the faithfulness of you. And he said Malachi, give to me what's mine, and I will open the windows of heaven to you. So don't worry, you pay your tithes, you'll never be without. It's God's promise. It really is God's promise. It will happen. In Laodicea, this last church, well, the Lukewarm church, is supposed to be rich, but in God's eyes, we very poor. No, we trust, and it's really the mission. Of every minister, every minister, to encourage us as the congregation, you know, to pull our own weight. He can't be there watching over us and say, no, you don't do it that way, you do it this way. You know, no. We're encouraged to hear what God is saying to us. And then to have the principles to do what he says. You know, that's the thing, isn't it? And in closing, can I just tell you now, on those seven churches there, I've left the, I left the pages or the blanks in there as you go along the timeline. But if you turn to the last chart, it's all filled in for you. And there, you've got the names of all the churches. If you turn it sideways on and look at it, you see you've got the Backside Church, early centuries of persecution. You've got the Immoral Church, from Constantine to the start of the Papacy, Pergamus, Persecuted Church, this one, the Late Apostolic Age, Smyrna, then the Immoral Church, then the Lax Church, Viatira, the Dead Church, time of the Reformation, the Favoured Church, Philadelphia, and the Lukeborn Church, Laodicea. And underneath, along down there, I've just written in there major events that have happened through history which seem to reinforce the fact that these seven churches are the things that are that Jesus said to John. You've seen those things. That's what was. But now write about the things that are and that's where we are. We're in the book of Revelation and we're in chapter 3 and we're in the Laodicean period. I really believe that, the last period. Holman Hunt painted the picture of Christ knocking at the door. It's uh, hanging up in, in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. You can see it. And the door is the door of the heart. That's what it's pictured. And you've got Jesus standing there with the light, the light of the world and many of you know that on that door there's no handle it's got to be open from the inside but around the door there's lots of ivy that's grown you know it hasn't been open for years years. but when you hear his voice you open the door and in this lukewarm church in chapter three there of revelation it's there where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears me and opens to me, I will come into him and I will sup with him and he with me. And that's really a wonderful opportunity. You know, for us today, they're great days. Great days we're living in, there's going to be great opportunity in these days. I believe what Simon says, before destruction, God always sends something along the way which will speak his power into the world and we can believe for that, our souls. Mm -hmm. All right, let's just close in prayer and then it's uh, just about 20 to 9, just gone. So we're not too late. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. Lord, the things that we read about, they encourage us. But Lord, reading from scripture, they do more than encouragement, they lay a foundation, a strong foundation and we can stand upon it, it's secure. Your word is truth, and Lord, we believe it implicitly. In these days, Lord, we want for ourselves to be the lights that go into the world to our families, neighbours, our work colleagues and school friends, wherever we are in the world, that, Lord, we might show forth the light of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for all the opportunities you give us. We thank you, Lord, for our time together tonight. Part us with your blessing, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry you haven't chance to do any questions. If you've got questions, you know, if you, if you can write them on a piece of... Do it straight away, otherwise when you get home, and think, what am I going to ask? You know, write it down. Write it on the back of one of the pages there. Uh, and then just let me have you. It's a concept I can answer but I'll look to find the answer for you. Okay, if possible. All right, safe journey home.